It's no longer a fair contest because I, I, won't, I won't try anymore. Hey dude, what's up, what's up, bro? Hey, uh, welcome to the show, guys. <clears throat> uh, this is the the man show, where men like you and me discuss manly things. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like um, like beer and uh, Australian rules football. Nah, I'm just I'm just joshing with you, bro. What? Oh man, <laughs> I fucking got you. <laughs> uh, I was gonna ask which team you supported. Uh, I'm playing for both sides. There's more than two sides. There's 16. Or well, there's like 18 now, I don't know. I'm playing for 18 sides. <laughs> I don't know anything about Australian <laughs> <Australia> so far. <laughs> what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. So uh, that, that was a that was a big big old joke right there. Uh, in, in reality, this is a show called Project A+. My name is Hunter, and your name is Hugh. Is that right? Yes. And uh, it, this is a show okay. where... Okay. Uh, where we uh, basically uh, it used to be one thing and now it's something else. What it used to be is we would do, uh, you know, projects. They know, now... they know, they know. Okay, whatever. So, do you, do you have any uh, extra curricular uh, uh, garbage you want to take care of before we uh, start talking about the movies we watched this week? Or are y'all, y'all good? I do, actually. I oh, do. Let's, let's hear it. Quite serious, like it involves what's what's going on in the world right now, you know. Oh, you have you have STIs. That's right. That's too bad. Okay, what's 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 serious? So, so you know you know what's happening with with the protests, right? You've heard of them. I believe they they began quite near you. Uh yeah, yeah, I'm aware of these protests. But mm-hmm. Hugh, uh, before we continue this, uh, I believe that we had talked about earlier this week how much we hate it with podcasts that are not about <laughs> serious things like our own. Um, graft episodes on about uh let's say current events that's right um but uh, with that in mind uh i trust i believe enough in you that uh you won't uh you know violate the pact of of lightheartedness uh, which is the key component of the show i think put your faith in my storytelling abilities oh yeah yeah (laughs) and i'll I'll turn my brain off and also turn my headphones off (laughs) (laughs) Mind you, unlike uh, some anecdotes on previous episodes, I've prepared uh, no notes for this. So it will be <laughs> rambling and incoherent, and I'll probably edit it out of the podcast. But anyway, you're aware of the protests. We've established that, right? Yeah, I have some knowledge of them. You're aware that they're not just confined to the United States of America. But I thought all other countries were had finished with racism and had moved on. Alas, they have not. And I live in one of the undeveloped countries that has not rid itself of its racist past. Mm. So, other protests sprang up around the world in solidarity to the movement that began with the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And in Australia, in particular, a movement sprang up from the Aboriginal community Mm. to highlight death in custody uh, of Indigenous people, right? Uh While also showing solidarity to the broad movement. So there are a number of protests across Australia, and uh, I I was following these uh, via my Twitter feed, 
and uh, there was an upcoming protest in Melbourne uh, that was going to come later that week on the Saturday. So we're back in time. The story takes place back in time. So pretend it's last week. I mean, all <laughs> stories that you tell on the show take place back in time. That is true. That is true. But just, just want to be clear. So it was the upcoming Saturday. I don't mean the Saturday that's coming up now. I mean the Saturday that came and went. Anyway, anyway. So I'm reading things about these protests coming up. And uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, the protest in New South Wales, which the state government actually declared illegal. Wow. And what that means is you can be arrested just for being there, right? Mm. That's, that's pretty fucked up. Just for participating in the protest, which is insane, right? Yeah. And I was a little bit confused about the situation with the Melbourne protest. Because I did have it in mind to actually attend myself. I, did th- I was mm. thinking about it, right? And I was wondering if the Melbourne protest was similarly illegal. Mm. And uh, I was a bit confused because, like, the people who were appearing in my feeds, who weren't necessarily the people I follow, but, you know, were associated with other people I follow or whatever, I wasn't sure which state they were from. So I made the assumption that the Victorian protests... Uh, were also illegal, right? Mm. And uh, I was like, oh, that's a bit uh, concerning. Should I still should I still attend? Did that mean I would get arrested? My, my first concern was like, how am I going to turn up for my one shift a week <laughs> if I'm in jail? Because uh-huh. uh, I don't know how long they keep you if they arrest you. Do they, do they just uh, put you in the cell overnight and then release you the next day or you have to be let out on bail? I don't know what the situation was. So this was all running you through. You don't have much money. I was, you know, I was worried. I was worried. Yeah, I didn't have <laughs> money to bail myself out. And I was, I was worried about the fact that, uh, yeah, I'd missed my shift that was coming up uh, the Sunday night, the next day. No, it would have been uh, the day after because of the public holiday. But anyway, I was like, should I still go? Am I going to turn up? It's going to be this illegal protest. There's going to be some confrontation with the police because I've seen the confrontations, the images uh, coming from America, the batons, the tear gas. But presumably the uh, Australian police is, is less violent than American is. I mean, I don't have the data to support that. Just in terms of access to, uh, like, military-grade hardware, which American police can get quite easily. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are, there are differences along those lines. But, you know, we have our own problems with the police force here. Yes. And I haven't been on the receiving end of police violence. I'm not an authority on that. But I do know... That there's been, you know, nearly 500 uh, indigenous deaths in custody uh, since a royal commission in 1991. So not too good. And uh, no convictions as a result of that either. The same problems occur. The manifestations can be different, and the access to the equipment, as you pointed out. So I'm thinking, like, first of all, I should be clear. I've attended protests, uh, and I usually attend a couple of protests a year. But I, I don't want to attend protests. I hate protests so much. Not in theory. The idea of protests, I think, is valid and worthwhile. I hate being there. I was, I was going to say, I'm going to say that. I support the protest. Okay, good, good. But We both support the protest. But I will say, uh, I'll never go to one. <laughs> because uh, I don't like being around crowds. And uh, they make me very anxious. So I don't think I would be much used to whatever protest I would be at anyway, because I would probably just cower. 
I think even worse than the crowds is that they drag on for a long time. They drag on for like three hours. Like, oh god! And you just the one that the the protest that I've attended most often is the Invasion Day rally on Australia Day, right? Yep. And that occurs like whenever Australia Day is, which I don't really remember. I think it's like the twenty sixth of January, mm. uh, which is you know high summer. So you're like standing in the middle of the road in this huge crowd with the sun beating down on you. Listening to speech after speech in the heat, it's horrible. <laughs> I hate it so much. Uh, anyway, but I, I reluctantly drag myself to these these protests, and I want to make sure I show my su- support despite my discomfort, right? I will say, I think, <laughs> like UBI, like Universal Basic Income, I support mm-hmm. protests, but uh, only because I think that, not to get too radical on the show, but uh, I think that both of them serve the purpose of um, more than not preventing a more violent uprising from occurring, right? Which mm. uh, I think has the potential to change things more rapidly and to a greater effect than uh, a peaceful protest would. But um, that's just me. And I think that uh, the way that we've allowed protests to be so easily defined as like, you know, peaceful marches that cause no damage to property or life uh, has pretty much... Uh, meant that no one in power is going to take them seriously. And I think that the only reason that the protests in the States have been treated with the, uh, you know, not respect, but have seemed to indicate a possibility for real change is because they have gotten fairly violent. And, uh, you know, at least in, in Minneapolis's case, um, the city council is probably or possibly going to defund the police. And they've announced the intention to do so. So... I think that, uh, you know, I don't know. But anyway, I'm, I'm in favor of some protests, let's say. Well, but I don't think the reforms that are, that are coming about as a result of these protests, I don't think they're necessarily due to the fact that the initial protests had an element of uh, property destruction associated with them, right? I don't think you could necessarily say that the same re- reforms wouldn't have also occurred i think i think i could i think i could make an argument at least in the states that um you know we've have a problem with priest brutality for basically the entire history of america and say um you know in in uh 2013 i think there's massive protests in ferguson uh and uh st louis uh which basically caused no structural changes whatsoever (laughs) Uh, and those, as far as I could tell, the perception of them was as way more peaceful than the ones that are here now. Now, granted, the ones uh, that are happening uh, as we speak are much more wider scale. Uh, and, you know, because no one has anything else to do, uh, or because most people don't have anything else to do, they've continued uh, at length. No, but I was going to say, like, uh, you're advocating for a very specific type of violent uprising mm. and saying that the peaceful protests can be useless. But there's there's a difference between like marches. There's I a difference between marches. And um, like you know, non-compliance. Yeah, boy, economic boycotts. Yeah, and, physical and boycotts, you know, like the tactics and, that yeah. the civil rights movement in the '60s used to achieve. Yes. You know, some strides in American society. Those could be very effective, but yes. uh, by and large, the modern protests just take the form of you know very limited uh, marches that, as far as I can tell, do not accomplish anything at all. So. I think I think in this case. The fact that it is occurring during a, a pandemic, when there is limitations on public gathering, 
has given it an extra strength. And I, yeah, I just think that the, the fact that they've been so sustained and the reason that they are able to be so sustained is that a bunch of people are out of work right now. It's also instigated clashes with police because they're, you know, unofficial protests. Yeah. And that has further strengthened the narrative that they're trying to push for. Yes. Even independent of the initial sort of property destruction that occurred, I think. Yeah. So I'm thinking about all these things. I've already decided this Victoria must be an illegal protest. I think I got that impression somehow. I'm risking catching COVID, of course. I have vulnerable family members that I don't want to um, put at risk. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about being arrested. I was like, should I really go? Is it, is it more responsible if I just stay home and like show my support by tweeting some shit or retweeting someone at some point <laughs> instead of going? Uh, yeah, right? of course. <laughs> That will surely affect change. Well, he'll, uh, individuals uh, contribute nothing to the larger movement, so <laughs> blanket your guilt for that. But I'm thinking about, like, uh, I know that there's, like, a part of me that just is, is reluctant to attend a protest because it's discomforting. Mm. And I mean, not because of the sort of political righteousness of it, but just the physical discomfort <laughs> of yes. being in a group of people in, in that situation and standing around for hours listening to speeches, which I don't enjoy. Yep, me too. But, you know, there's also like a, a conscience inside me somewhere that uh, is trying to compel me to go. Mm. Like a little, an angel of my better nature, right? And that angel is trying to persuade me. And uh, the technique that finally works, because I did attend the Melbourne protest uh, last Saturday. Wow. The technique that finally worked was, this is what the angel said to me. This protest is occurring in the city. Hmm. The city has a number of DVD and Blu-ray outlets. <laughs> uh, and you're going to loot them. If you... <laughs> not quite. If you, uh, you know, if you, if you go a little bit earlier, if you walk down to the city a little bit earlier, <laughs> maybe you can pick up uh, a nice juicy DVD of a film that would be entirely appropriate for viewing <laughs> with a delicious pizza dinner. Because, because... A couple of nights prior to a couple of nights prior to the protest, I had uh, purchased some pizza bases. I'd made my own pizza sauce. I know that 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 night, the night of the protest, I'd be having pizza again, delicious uh, faux New York style pizza that I make myself, albeit not the bases. Hey, a pizza! Remember the pizza story? Should I play the theme song here for old no. times' sake? No, because now it's a pizza story, and it's about police, sort of. A piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza, lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a police story, dig them fights. Anyway, so yes, that worked. That worked. That was the, the tipping point, right? That was the thing that... Was, that, was uh, selfishness. The selfishness, but that's, that's, that's okay. Like, part of me is, is appealing to my own selfishness in order to get me to do something good, right? Mm. So I was like, fine, I'll, I'll turn up to the protest early. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll grab a couple of movies that uh, will be fun to watch with pizza. Because when you have pizza... Who the fuck is buzzing my door? This happened at like 7.30 in the morning. And I'm reluctant to check. Anyway, doesn't matter. 
you have to pair pizza with the right film. And I didn't have access to the right film. Like, I, I, looked, I scanned my DVD collection. There, there wasn't anything there that, uh, you know, jumped out at me. And I really wanted to pair... Take it to piracy. I wanted to pair a particular film, which we'll talk about later. Oh. I won't, I won't mention it yet. I, uh, I looked up the website of some of the stores in the city. I saw that they had this film. I was like, great. Duck down, grab the film, put it in my backpack, stand around this protest, walk home again. But I was a bit late getting ready. So by the time I uh, wound up there, uh, it was basically the time the protest was starting. Mm. I didn't realize it because, again, I thought it was an illegal protest and there wouldn't be as many people there as uh, maybe there otherwise would have been, and especially the fact that it's a pandemic. But there were so many, so many people. <laughs> Um, so there was really, there was really nothing I could do, but just join the protest, uh, straight away. Well, that's too and bad. I missed my, missed my chance. But it turned out, as you might expect, that it wasn't a legal protest. And also in the case of the New South Wales protest, they overturned the decision, uh, about like 10 minutes before it was due to commence, <laughs> which is insane. That is crazy. So anyway, the New South Wales one went ahead. The Victorian one went ahead. There were so many people, it was like 30,000 people. The whole street was like packed. The organisers were very careful in the wake of the pandemic to hand out masks, make sure everyone was distanced, hand sanitizer, and all that sort of stuff. But at some point, with that many people, it's impossible to control the distance between the people. That's true. So it all squashed together at some point. Um, so I, I, I was there. It was like two, I was standing there for two hours listening to these speeches and then sort of marched off. And I was like, well, while it's marching off, I can duck into this DVD store <laughs> and, <laughs> and find the DVD and also find uh, uh, something for my brother whose birthday is coming up. So I'm browsing this DVD store. Um, I find something for my brother. I can't find the DVD I want, though, for my pizza dinner. Uh, so I exit that store. The crowd is still going. So I thought like there'd be no one in that section of the street anymore because the march had gone, but there were so many people that, you know, there was like 20 minutes delay getting from one place to another anyway. So uh, that 20 minutes I spent in the pizza store did not clear up the crowd. So I tried to make my way down to the other DVD Blu-ray outlet through the crowd that was ever thickening. Uh-huh. And uh, it was like Im- impossible to, to get through within the crowd or it was moving too slowly for my liking. So I'd duck around to a side street, go around the block and then come back the other way and try and sneak around to the, to the DVD store. And I, I came through one alley and it was completely blocked through. There was no way into the crowd to get around to the DVD store. I went around another way and then finally I managed to squeeze my way around through the throng of people and uh, got to the outlet and uh, it was closed until further notice because of the protests. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? I support this movement. Obviously, I turn up to the protest. And I, I even support whatever property damage may ensue and clashes with the police. You know, I think it's the right thing to do to make a stink about this particular issue. And, you know, as you pointed out earlier, that's what will affect real change and not just a peaceful march, per se. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I do not support <laughs> the closing... <laughs> Of JB Hi-Fi on, <laughs> on Burke Street in Melbourne because it prevented me from getting the DVD I wanted. 
Wow, this is a great story. You better not cut this out. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I didn't stay the full protest. I didn't know how long it was going to go. I'd already been there for like three hours. So it was like, I've heard enough speeches. I, I was here. Yeah, that's good enough. Mm. Is there a proportion of a protest that you have to attend to say that you've attended it? Like, obviously, you shouldn't turn up just for like 10 minutes and leave. I feel I, like, I don't know. you know, two or three hours is a good is a good chunk of time. That's a good chunk of support, right? That's such a long time, though. Even though I spent most of it trying to track down a DVD. Let, let's say longer than a short film, but shorter than a Lord of the Rings movie. That's fair enough. <laughs> we'll go with that. Ex- expanded cut, I mean. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I trudged off home, and I was like, I was like maybe halfway home when I realized, oh, there's another like outlet of that same chain that probably would have had the DVD and was, you know, nice. not in the line of the protest. So I could have just gone there, but it's too late. Nice. Too late. Walked off home. Had to eat my pizza to a different film, which we will talk about. Shortly. Shortly. That's my story. Do you have any stories this week? Uh, nope. That's a shame. Uh, I guess I bought a car today or my girlfriend and I bought a car today. Really? Yep, and we applied to an apartment too. So, wow, do do you drive? Yeah, wow. It's impo- it's impossible to get around the city. The city, most cities in America are not like they are more built with public transportation in mind. So the best you get is like kind of a bad bus system, and especially since my girlfriend is working out in the suburbs, pretty much the only way to get to where she is working is in a car. So. Hmm. How are you able to get an apartment without jobs? Oh, uh, we have guarantors. I don't know, man. We well. Oh, okay. Right. I don't know if we're gonna. Yeah, yeah. We're not. We don't know if we're gonna get the apartment or not yet, but we applied to one. So. Okay. Well, good luck. All right. I think that a lot of places are like loosening up their restrictions just because you know they have units that they want to fill, and obviously, a lot of people are out of work right now. So. Yeah, that's true. And my girlfriend does have a job offer that she could be like oh i'm gonna make this much when i start working so yeah and uh what what are the places like that you're looking at um uh they mostly kind of (laughs) suck there are a lot of new buildings uh in the city and in the suburbs in minneapolis not in st paul Mm -hmm. um and uh they all are pretty new buildings and they all have a very similar vibe which is to say they all feel like hotels and I mean that as literally as possible because most of them have like weird amenities like a pool or um, a business center, uh, like yeah. an eating room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the same thing. Uh, we've we've seen we've we've seen approximately one building that felt like an actual apartment building. Mm-hmm. Uh, even 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 this had the weird amenities. It was an older building that's built in the eighties. This is the one that we applied to. Um, yeah. But the one that we applied to is uh, one of the tall. It's a, the I think it's the thirtieth. 30th uh, tallest building in Minneapolis. Wow. And we'd be on the 22nd floor. Wow. A <laughs> uh, cool cool spot. Um, but most of them I do not find to be aesthetically appealing. So what's the location like? Uh, of this building that we applied to, it's like uh, right downtown, which is like perfect. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, unlike New York where you could you pay too much for a shitty apartment here mm. you pay a decent amount for a good apartment so mm. uh, you don't really have to skimp on location or size or anything really um and we're still paying less than what we paid in new york so mm. 
and uh, yeah, that's that's about about it. Oh, good luck. Oh, well, 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 thank you. Well, uh, shall we shall we commence with the podcast proper? Uh, unless you have anything else. Nope. Then let's go. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. We made this into a game recently, so shall we continue playing? Shall we enter the game zone? Let's do it. Okay, now the thing's gonna happen. Okay, now the thing's gonna happen. So I'm just gonna open up. I'm gonna open up my book of movies that I uh, write down, and uh, let's 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 go for the entries of this week. <laughs> now, if you remember Should last I guess week, first? I yeah, I guess so. We're supposed to guess, right? If you, if you were last week, I uh, uh, destroyed you. You <laughs> trounced appropriate me. Term. <laughs> appropriate term. Uh, let's see if I can make this into a streak of some sort uh, this week. So let's see. You wanna you wanna pause it to guess? Uh, my guess is that you watched six films. Right. Let's see. Let's let's let's. let's uh, okay, I'm opening up the book. Okay, I'm. Uh, Looking, let's see, what's, what day did we start this? So, for me, it's we record on Tuesday, so uh, the next day that I would have been able to watch it would be Wednesday. So, let's let's open up Wednesday. What does it say on Wednesday? Uh, oh, there's nothing under Wednesday. All right, well, that's got to be a fluke, right, Hugh? Yeah, just, you just took one day off and then... Yeah, yeah. All right, let's look at Thursday. Okay. Oh, oh no, there's nothing on Thursday, too. This is this is getting strange. But you're building up something big, a marathon, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's let's see. Uh, Friday. Oh, it says nothing on here as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, s- Saturday also also a blank. Sunday. Yeah, yeah. There's there's nothing there too. Um, okay, here here we go. There's uh, a a film here on on Tuesday or on Monday that I watched. Uh, oh, I, and there's actually two there on Monday. Um, and then there's nothing on Tuesday. So I watched two films. <laughs> 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 I am so annoyed. <laughs> Why? You'll find you, out shortly you, that I'm you so watch annoyed. 12 films? Uh, no, that would have been fine because then I would have trounced you. Oh, did you watch one film? I'm so annoyed for another reason. <laughs> <laughs> did you watch because, one like, movie? Okay, let me just be clear before we get into this, before you even start guessing. Let me just say the previous week you watched, you know. Either 13. 11 or 13 films, depending on how you count them. Right. I would say 13 for, for argument's sake. You watched 13 films. And I was like, I can't compete with that. Mm. So, you know, my willpower, my, my, my will to even compete from that point on was, was shattered. Right. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> I just completely destroyed your, your spirit, your masculine energy. I reduced mm. your T number to a historic low. Um, now, we should also say that, uh, so you watched two films for the week. Um, mm-hmm. One day you were out of commission entirely. Is that correct? Uh, s- sort of, yeah. But I don't want to talk about it, so let's move on. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, because I had a joke around that. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell me the joke and the not included on the podcast. But the po- is, why would I tell a joke that's not to be included on the podcast? What joy is there to be had with you that? Just, but anyway. You just say the joke and then it'll have a, a extra resonance of absurdism. Anyway, your peak your peak performance last week shattered my will. <laughs> well, it also shattered my will, so... 
And I'm annoyed. Because <laughs> <laughs> you only watched one film. That's my guess. Your guess is one film? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> what happens in the event of a draw? Not that I'm saying it is a draw. We both lose. We both lose. We don't both yeah. win. No, no. We both lose. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Maybe maybe I watch more films than I than I remember. Let's just have a look. Um... No, no, wait. I take it back. You watched like 14 films or something like that. <laughs> Too late. You've guessed. <laughs> yeah, you guessed you're, doing a, you're, you're, you're doing a, a you've trap. You're trying to trap me. <laughs> one film. Let's hear it. Yes, this was a trap. And yes, I trapped you. <laughs> <laughs> but I got out of it because I recognized it. <laughs> no, it's too late. It's already been registered. Let's, already, let's hear how many films he watched. <laughs> One, two, three. Take away the two. Put the other two numbers together. Thirteen! <laughs> I win. <laughs> I, matched, I matched your dubious thirteen with a dubious mm. thirteen of my own. Most well, of it's substantial, some of it's dubious. Mm. But let's say 13. Lucky 13. <laughs> well, let's just say that my two is also dubious, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let, me just say, let me just say. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I've tied the high score for the number of films. <laughs> uh-huh. And I now have the record for the biggest margin between <laughs> the loser and the winner. <laughs> yeah, that's that's okay. You have the record for now being the biggest loser. I'm the biggest winner. No, I'm the big, but I'm I'm also the person who set the record in the first place. So, no, no, no. I'm a biggest winner in terms of margin. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Who cares about the margin? This Me. Is, this is some dumb stat stuff. All I care about this I raw data. All I care about is the raw data, bro. All right. How are we going to divvy this up? Why don't you do seven, and then I do two, and then no, no. You do the first one. Then I do seven. You do your second one, and then I do six. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll just do the first one. Ready? Yeah. It's going to take about five seconds to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, it's kind of a, a weird week for me. Why is that? Well, you know, I thought I had some health problems, but uh, luckily I, I don't. Uh, though my mom said that I might have a genetic condition, so that would be... What? Really? I, um... Yeah, this is this is a story that might be too personal, but uh, I, guess he, I guess I'll just tell it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So, uh... <laughs> Um, on Monday, I guess it was, but was it Monday or Sunday? Whatever. Someday. One, it was Sunday. It was Sunday. I got a, um, text from my mother who I'd been talking to a lot recently because I recently had a health scare around my eyes. It turned out to be fine. Uh, I was in the middle of grocery shopping with my girlfriend and, uh, I looked down and my mom said, oh, could you please give me a call? And I was like, okay, uh, this seems a little urgent, but you know, I'll, I'll give her, uh, and I texted her back, like, you know, I'll call her back, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, when I get home, and she was like, "Okay, great," and I was like, "Okay, what what could this be? Did did you know? Is did one of my family members have the coronavirus, or my parents get a divorce? Something had to my brother? You know, these are the things that went through my mind, right?" Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out that my mom was uh, being a uh, hypochondriac, uh, but not for her, for me, uh, because you, know, when I was younger, I had. Um, this sort of bizarre um, condition uh, when I was a adolescent, let's say when I was, uh, you know, uh, preteen to about 14 or 15, where I had these very big stretch marks on my back, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, it, eventually my doctor was just like, oh, you know, it's probably just because you grew so fast, you know, 
But uh, Smash got to today, and my mom uh, called me and said that the this eye uh, condition that I have uh, is also a symptom of another genetic disorder called Marfan syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of this. Marvin syndrome. Marfan's. Oh. Or Marfan. No, Marfan syndrome. Uh, it's a disorder with uh, connective tissue. It it basically means that you know people who are tall and lean and have long fingers and. Uh, you know, stuff like that, um, like me, for instance, uh, suffer mm. from it. Uh, generally, it's pretty mild, but sometimes it can lead to bad complications of the heart. Um, so uh, the doctor said that I might have these stretch marks because I might be a sufferer from this. And also, this eye problem that I have is also a possible symptom of this. So my mom called me, was like, she's like, I don't want you to be scared. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go uh, go see a doctor about that now, too. <laughs> just just having, a, having a good time this, this week. Wow. So you haven't yet seen a doctor about that? No. No. Wow. wow I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I don't even know if I can get a, like a, you know, a, a general practitioner's appointment. Uh, right now so mm. we'll see you having a rough couple of weeks yeah uh it seems that way so you uh you know uh, i think that um what uh we do when uh we're under some you know odd stress like that is we tend to go to our creature comforts uh, i think you'll agree with me mm-hmm. and um uh, so mostly i've been playing a video game called final fantasy uh, 14 which is a mmorpg uh, which it's just a game where you could you know, listen to a podcast for a couple hours and just turn your mind off and just, you know, do nothing. Wait, Final Fantasy fourteen is a game where you, like, have an avatar that listens to podcasts. It's a game that you can... It's is that easy the game? To, no, it's a game that you can easily listen to podcasts while you're playing it. It's, uh, it's a little mindless, kind of grindy, you know. Clear, clear it up for me. Okay. Um, but uh, I also turned to a movie that I had watched not that long ago and that you had actually watched not that long ago two mm-hmm. uh that is part of a uh box set that i purchased recently uh called the box set's called uh uh solid metal nightmares the films of shinya tuskimoto and the mm-hmm. film i watched uh on monday on yesterday was called uh tetsuo the iron man mm. um which we both talked about uh so i don't need to get into details but uh you know it's uh basically perfect for one of this I think that uh, it's it's like I said about Ghost of Mars, a film that you watch it, you, it's impossible to imagine a better version of it. So you know that it's just this perfect articulation of what it is. So there you go. I agree. It's just the right length too. I think it could be exhausting uh, if it was like even ninety minutes, but I think that crisp. Yes. It's like 50, 45 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, it's like seventy minutes, but <laughs> you know. But um, you know what I, I realized looking over the uh, contents of this box set is that just like uh, Igmar Bird- Bergman, uh, Shinya Tsukimoto likes to make short films. So, mm. All right, uh, that's it. <laughs> All right, my turn. Let's get these uh, first seven motherfuckers out of the way. Go for it, bro. Not to make light of your recent medical scares, mm. but when you informed me that you had, after an eye examination dilated pupils which blurred your vision for a full day afterwards uh-huh my first thought was that means you won't be able to watch any films that day and i'll be able to race ahead this <laughs> week uh yep that's 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 what happened my second thought was oh you know that's that sounds bad i hope you're okay 
But my first thought was the film thing. <laughs> well, just, just like a protest, uh, the first thing that you think about is yourself. <laughs> you're, right. just a, you're just a selfish cunt, and uh, that's it. <laughs> You ready? Okay, the first film I watched. Wait, yeah, I'm just going to take my uh, headphones off real quick. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be... Oh, I'll try and get through these as quickly as I can, which is not very quickly. <laughs> the first film I watched was uh, A Canterbury Tale, the uh, Powell and Pressburger film from 1944. Now, I have to credit my brother for the following observation regarding the work of Powell and Pressburger, or the Archers, if you will, in general. I won't. When approaching many of their films, sometimes you have to will yourself over a hump to actually get started and watch the thing. There is, firstly, the dated Britishness of it all. The dominance of Hollywood sometimes gives classic British cinema a quaint museum piece quality that you have to acclimatise yourself to. Mm. And, as well, sometimes the premise of uh, Archer's productions don't sound especially appealing on paper, or the premises, I should say. But once you do overcome these hurdles, you realise you're in the hands of some of the most joyously entertaining storytellers the medium has ever seen. And I don't mean entertaining in like a popcorn blockbuster sense, per se. Just the sort of charm and thoughtfulness and sheer sure-handedness with which they approach their films. And A Canterbury Tale is a good case in point. So I'd seen, I think, most of the Archer's most widely acclaimed films before I watched this one. And I meant to see this one too, but uh, it spent a few years gathering dust on my to-watch list. Mm. Because, like, on paper, it's like a wartime riff on the Canterbury Tales and uh, it's, you know, it's like two hours long. It sounds like a long time. <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree. It does, it does sound boring <laughs> as shit. <laughs> and yet, and yet, now that I've seen it, I can, I can report that they have done it again. Well, they did it again. So even though the film is to some degree a celebration of Chaucer and Britishness, two things which do not resonate with me in the slightest. I have a fondness for Chaucer, actually. I find this a pure and constant delight. Mm. Regarding Chaucer, uh, not that I have anything against him, but I am ignorant of him, essentially, aside from his reputation. This is, this is such a peculiar film. It plays pretty much like a hangout movie where the, the pleasant company of its characters acts as the central moment, momentum. There is, there is a plot, but it's kind of an odd plot, and it's essentially beside the point. Actually, cleverly beside the point, but I won't spoil too many details. I'll give you a, a quick summary of the plot. So, um, we have... Uh, Hugh, we remember, have, you're, you're supposed to be going quickly. <laughs> I know. But no, some of them will be more in-depth than others. Okay. I'm rationing my time. So, so, we have two soldiers and a women's land army recruit mm. alighting in a small village near Canterbury. A fictional village, as it happens... But uh, obviously Canterbury is a real place. Upon arriving, a shadowy figure in the bushes deposits a sticky substance all over the land girl's hair and then flees. Um. And uh, the trio set off to, <laughs> to capture him, but he uh, eludes their search. Uh. So there is, there is a central mystery going on here. 
So it's a man in a soldier's uniform who, in the dead of night, assaults the hairdos of uh, local women with glue. <laughs> yeah, with glue. They call him the glue man. <laughs> <laughs> and Are you fucking and, kidding uh, me? This no, I'm not kidding. Like, this sounds like shit. <laughs> this that's the the most plot in this story, right? Uh, no, I'm never gonna watch this movie. But <laughs> and the three the three main characters spend their time in the village trying to uncover the culprit. Uh huh. But the genius the genius of the plot is the way it acts as a pretense for exploring the continuity of history and folk tales, and also for allowing us to delight in the company of these these charming characters. Mm. Now one one interesting point here. So one of one of the three uh, protagonists is an American sergeant stationed in England during World War II. And uh, as soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, "Ugh, this is clearly a, a British actor doing like one of the worst American accents I've ever heard." Mm-hmm. And I was, I was a little disappointed in the archers who normally aren't ones to, to shirk on details like that. So I, so I looked him up to see what the deal was and, and why, they, why they cast this British guy. Not only was he authentically American, <laughs> but he was also authentically an American sergeant stationed in England during World War II. Well, that's <laughs> so, who you are, he was so, like, uh, hammy or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's why, because um, part of the reason why his accent sounds weird is because we're so accustomed to the artificial accent used in Hollywood movies of the time, mm. which was, fun fact, created by an Australian linguist, I think. But that transatlantic accent that no one ever naturally spoke. Right? Yeah, like your Cary Grant accent. And Catherine Hepburn famously yeah. as well. So it's quite unusual to hear a, a genuine accent <laughs> that is not like, that is like, of its time, because obviously if it sounded like a, a modern-day contemporary American accent, it wouldn't have stood out, but it's a sort of accent that probably doesn't exist in that context anymore. I mean, it's, Anyways, it's like when you watch, like, uh, you know, Paisan, and you hear the American soldiers than that. Mm. Anyway, this particular sergeant's name was John Sweet, mm-hmm. and perhaps the only inauthentic part of uh, his performance is the fact that he says he's from, I think, Idaho or something from memory, when in fact he's from your current neck of the woods, Minneapolis, at least by birth. Uh. I was also pleased to discover that uh, John Sweet donated his entire salary, uh, $2,000 at the time, for a Canterbury tale to NAACP, uh. which seems like an unprecedented gesture for a white American actor in like 1944. So that's interesting. Mm. I think a Canterbury tale is an enduring masterpiece of British cinema from filmmakers who have many of those to their name. Mm. And uh, even if my uh, <laughs> summation of the plot put you off, I still recommend that you watch it. I think it's a genuine masterpiece. Well, uh, probably, I probably won't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't watch movies anymore. I just play Final Fantasy. Fair enough. Hey, what else you got? This is kind of returning to something okay. that we discussed uh, earlier okay. in the podcast, but okay. in the wake of okay. uh, the, the worldwide... <laughs> I don't okay. want to laugh while I'm saying Black Lives Matter just because you're doing a Pete Davidson impression. <laughs> you bastard. Yeah. Okay. I'll say that again. I'll say that again. Okay. In the wake of uh, worldwide Black yeah. Lives Matter protests. Okay. What film would be more appropriate than uh, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct Thirteen? 
uh, a tale, <laughs> a tale of a gang going on a murderous <laughs> rampage after a few of their number get gunned down by the police. The star of which is a police officer. Okay, well, it's got two stars, isn't it? No, I've never seen it. it. Yeah, it does, but I, I would say the police officer is the main star. Mm. But it is, yeah, it is a two-hander and an ensemble piece as well. Um, I've seen this before a long time ago. I wanted to revisit it because uh, because I've been watching Dark Star a lot. As you know. <laughs> You've also been watching John Carpenter stuff, so John Carpenter's in the air. Mm. And, uh, you know... He's a pretty enjoyable filmmaker to watch the films of. <laughs> it's true. You're right. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I've seen it before. And though this, this specific genre is not necessarily my jam, I usually find holdout movies kind of dull at some point. Mm. But I think this one is a taut, accomplished thriller. And I especially enjoy how Carpenter kind of turns the story into this kind of urban crime horror movie. And the antagonists kind of become these, like, barely glimpsed phantoms in the night. Really well done. I think Austin Stoker is, is very good in the lead. The other actors, a little bit less so. <laughs> but the, but they're, all, they're all okay. They're all fine. But uh, he's definitely the standout among the performers. But uh, good stuff. Does well on uh, apparently quite a small budget as well. Yeah, next. okay. Okay. Next. You watch next? I watch next. Um, so the next film I watched was on the night of the protest, and although I didn't uh, retrieve mm-hmm. the uh, the DVD of the film that I most wanted to see to accompany mm-hmm. my pizza dinner, dinner mm-hmm. I did uh, select a film that I think was also quite appropriate and uh, pizza-worthy, and that film is another film I've seen before by the same director, <laughs> The Thing, because I had the DVD of it lying around. Okay. Well, I don't know if we need to talk about The Thing. Good stuff, though. We don't really. It's definitely the accepted masterpiece of Carpenter's yes. films. Hadn't seen it for years. I, I, I mean, I, I saw it a, a, quite a few times uh, as a younger film fan, but uh, hadn't revisited it for a while, so thought it was time. I, I've, I'd actually forgotten or maybe didn't know that uh, the score is credited to Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Because in practice, the score just sounds like John Carpenter because... Um, the main musical motif is like these ominous repeating synth bass notes that, as far as I can tell, are either Morricone's attempt at a Carpenter score or just Carpenter himself because he added his own music on top of it. I'm not entirely sure, actually, but anyway. All I can really say about this experience of watching The Thing now is that I appreciate it even more than I did a long time ago. Mm. Uh, it feels like a perfect engine of suspense, action, and horror. I don't think Carpenter's has ever quite bettered this particular recipe. Yeah, it's it's no uh, Ghost of Mars. Next one I watched is a little film called The Thing, colon, Terror Takes Shape, a feature-length documentary about The Thing. <laughs> All right, we don't need to talk about this. <laughs> we don't. The next one I watched was uh, another film I'd already seen, The Navigator from 1924, which is a Buster Keaton film. Mm. The first time I watched this, whatever copy I had at the time uh, was absent of soundtrack whatsoever. And it's kind of a disorienting experience to watch a silent film that way. Um, I agree. Because even though they don't have, like, a soundtrack that is, you know, dictated by the filmmakers necessarily, they were never designed to be watched in complete silence. So it, it is kind of an odd experience. And... Uh, 
I don't remember the film especially fondly, perhaps partly for that reason. Mm-hmm. Partly for another reason that I'll get to. <laughs> um, this is this contains some of Keaton's best, best work. Most of the film is set on this cruise ship. Actually, the only reason the film was ever made was because someone who was part of the production got access to this cruise ship that was just going to be turned into scrap metal and they sort of built the film around it. So they're on an actual cruise ship that they renovated themselves and it's mostly just Keaton and uh, his co-star Gene Havers. And there's some great stuff and I think some of his best material is uh, in the in the sections of the film, especially the first half where it's just the two of them aboard this ship, the Navigator. Mm. It drags a little bit at a certain point, even though it's only a, a 60-minute movie. And uh, it's also, you know, the end, the ending climax uh, action set piece. It's kind of racist, so. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the navigator ends up at this, uh, you know, desert island. And it's like, oh, no, cannibals. And, you know, the only, the only saving grace is no one's in blackface. The actors were actually black, so <laughs> there's that. So yeah, there's this kind of like a sort of unpleasant aftertaste, I would say, at mm. the end of this film. But nonetheless, there's some there's some great material in this film, and it's still an essential watch for Keaton fans. That's the Navigator. Mm. The next film I watched was a film from two years later, 1926, called The Strong Man, which was Frank Capra's directorial debut. <laughs> Sounds like you're spending your time wisely. I wasn't watching this because of Frank Capra. Um, I was watching this because of its star, Harry Langdon. Mm. Another silent clown. Another silent clown. Somewhat forgotten these days. So while Harold Lloyd's reputation seems to be on the ascent, you don't find much about Harry Langdon these days. Bro, just to issue a quick correction, it seems the first uh, film that Frank Capra actually made is called Fulta Fisher's Boarding House. So, Feature film. I meant. Yeah, what, what is a feature film? <laughs> a film that is long enough to qualify as a feature film. It's just arbitrary. It's just arbitrary. Which in the old days is like six reels. How was the movie? How was the movie? Yep. <clears throat> well, this is my first experience with Langdon. Oh, and I boy, will say that, that he, <laughs> he, he radiates pure cuck energy. <laughs> <laughs> And I hate that we, that we have both absorbed alt-right rhetoric to the point where whatever limp satire there once was is now just a <laughs> reflex. <laughs> Nonetheless, in this case, there is some extra justification for that label. So early on, uh, a female criminal who, who dwarfs um, Langdon, who uh, is of a diminutive stature like many of the silent clowns, mm. attempts to manipulate him to recover an illicit wad of bills that she has secreted on his person in order to avoid the police, right? And, and obviously, comic shenanigans ensue. As the woman is trying to recover the bills from his rear pocket, it essentially plays out as if she's attempting to, like, molest him. And that's how he interprets it as well. So there is this, like, element of sexual domination here. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of further... Uh, solidified by a concluding gag where he inadvertently stumbles upon this life-drawing class and then has to flee the building upon glimpsing a female nude. Mm. But anyway, like, if, if you see, like, a second of, of his material, sort of, you sort of get what I mean. But funnily enough, after his career dried up, 
he appeared in in a number of shorts under the Educational Pictures banner at Columbia, maybe the same one that, that Keaton was working under at the time, and settled on a submissive husband character. <laughs> so eventually did end up uh, playing a, a pure cuck. But mm. he is he's a peculiar presence. So he's childish, but not entirely innocent. So in this film, he will strike out with sucker punches whenever he feels he's been wronged, uh, even if they're comically feeble. <laughs> and uh, even, even more so than his fellow agents of chaos, his reason for being seems to be to infuriate. And the way he infuriates uh, the people around him is his art. He, he does certainly recall Stan Laurel at points. Um, I, think he, I think in The Strongman he even uses that rising hat gag that uh, Laurel would later make famous. And in fact, interestingly enough, during a pay dispute between uh, Stan Laurel and his producer Hal Roach, Roach spitefully paired Hardy with Langdon. This is way after Langdon's prime in a film called Zenobia, hoping to start a new comedic pair. So even though he, he anticipated Stan Laurel, it's funny that he ended up being like a, a second-rate Stan Laurel uh, for a producer's ends. He also, I've realised, looks and sometimes acts remarkably like Teller of Penn and Teller. Mm. Another, another guy radiates cuck energy. <laughs> even their smile is the same shape. Let's, let's get a picture. Yep, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree on all accounts. Just based on his on this photo, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at. He looks like a cock. <laughs> he looks like Teller. I agree. He kind of has the same like curly hair too. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. But anyway, in terms of his style, his gags are quite small, and his rhythms are, are, are fairly relaxed and unhurried. Mm. Um, which I kind of appreciate. It's kind of a different feel than uh, Chaplin or Keaton, for example. Uh, except for the climax of this film, uh, yeah, everything is fairly small and he doesn't really rely on props or stunts. And, uh, you know, his expressions themselves are sort of understated, albeit not to the degree of Keaton. Mm. Funnily enough, perhaps to compensate for his sort of emasculated, impotent presence around uh, women's sexuality earlier in the film, mm -hmm. the climax of this film is essentially Langdon destroying a parlor of sin with a massive phallic-like cannon <laughs> and mm. scattering the imposing would-be pimps of his blind bride-to-be and driving them from town with the help <laughs> <laughs> of a group of stalwart missionaries singing onward Christian soldiers. <laughs> Weird. This is, this is Capra's first uh, feature as, as a director, as I said. And though there is, mm. I think, some tension between the, the dramatic and the comic that doesn't entirely cohere, uh, notably there's like this extended sequence in the middle of the film to establish that there's this little town uh, that will feature in the film's climax that has been overrun by a criminal element and just goes on too long and sort of de destabilizes the narrative a little bit. Unnecessary could have been cut down. Mm. Even though this, this predates... Uh, Capra's sort of uh, conversion into a more moralistic filmmaker, because apparently there was some epiphany he had at some point in his life. Um, there is some sanctimonious nonsense here with the stolid pastor whose faith is unwavering and, and stuff like that. Nonetheless, uh. nonetheless, I think this is like an exceptionally well-executed film, uh, especially for its type. Uh. And a very impressive debut for Mr. Capra. The visual sophistication on display, 
in the climactic action set piece with the cannon and such is up there with the best of Keaton and Lloyd, I think. The, there's some stuff in this which also anticipates uh, later Chaplin stuff. Mm. So firstly, the thing where I already covered it earlier, where a criminal uh, has illicit funds and a cop is chasing her and she stashes them in the pocket of this hapless boob, which is Langdon, and then has difficulty retrieving it. That's the opening plot device in um, The Circus, the Chaplin film, which I spoke about last week. Uh. I'm sure it probably has its origins in vaudeville like any, everything else, but nonetheless. And we also have this, this business with the poor blind girl, which mirrors City Lights. So the dramatic stuff here doesn't work so well, I don't think, because he's not like an inherently sympathetic presence. I think that's part of the point of his character, really, is that he's infuriating. So I don't really care about his nonsense love story with a blind girl. So there's that. Anyway, that's the film. Sounds like I'm not going to watch it. So then I went back in time. Oh, God. And, and watched the film he made before that, which is called Tramp, 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 albeit from uh, the same year. Uh-huh. And this was written but not directed by Frank Capra. Uh-huh. Uh, it was directed by one of the other directors who worked for his production company, Harry Langdon. No, Harry Edwards. <laughs> Harry Langdon is him. <laughs> the names were confusing oh, on the Wikipedia boy. page. They look very similar. Harry Edwards. <laughs> You're really falling apart here, man. <laughs> <laughs> First you, first you, you must say dilapidated instead of dilated. Keep on, I said, yeah, whatever. You said anyway, it three we're back, times. <laughs> not, not in the edit. The edit was perfect. <laughs> what are you talking about? <clears throat> anyway. Just because so the tramp, edit tramp, wise tramp. doesn't mean the truth isn't out there, bro. Tramp, 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 tramp. Okay, come on, come on. <laughs> Uh, so this is a, a more basic story than The Strong Man. Basically, it just boils down to Harry Langdon is uh, some guy. A cuck. He's a cuck. Okay, <laughs> he's some he's some baby cuck man. <laughs> he enters a cross country walking race to save his father's shoe store. That's the plot. Okay, got it. Forrest Gump. But I like the way this played with his inherent kind of infuriating baby-like persona. So there's a sequence where after he takes too many sleeping pills the previous night, he's treated like a literal baby um, by the proprietor of a hotel that's trying to get him ready for the race and physically like trying to put his clothes on while he's sort of uh, in a disoriented condition. And later on, a cab driver tries to... Uh, later on, a cab driver tries to get him to pay the bill for the, for the ride and treats him again as if he's a complete imbecilic baby. And then the symbolism is, is completed at the end of this film because after winning the race, marrying the girl and having a beautiful baby boy, we see the baby boy in the crib and, of course, it's played by Langdon himself. Okay. So, um, interestingly, this film prefigures or anticipates that's an interesting use of the word interestingly (laughs) we haven't got there yet it 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 prefigures or anticipates two iconic moments in film comedy in in a cyclone sequence langdon very nearly beats keaton to the punch as he props up the falling facade of a double-story house with a tiny plank in order to rescue his girl although i think keaton did versions of the famous 
stunt he did in Steamboat Bill Jr., where it falls on him and he's saved by um, being in the space of the window frame. I think he did versions of that in his short films as well, but nonetheless. There is, there is some cyclone business here that does anticipate what Keaton did in Steamboat Bill Jr. And secondly, the, the conceit of Langdon playing himself uh, as a baby is exploited uh, for a later famous Laurel and Hardy short called Bratz. So there is the connection to Laurel and Hardy again. Isn't that interesting? Aren't you glad I told you that? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, you have to, if, if I'm being honest, if there's something I don't care about, it's Sile Comedians. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm here to change that. So, uh-huh. although the strong man is uh, more oh visually sophisticated uh, uh-huh. in some respects, and it tells a more complicated narrative, I think Tramp, Tramp, Tramp is the superior effort. Because it, it presents the, the Langdon archetype in a more pure form, doesn't bother to drum up any sympathy or pathos uh, from his character, and uh, cloaks it all in a, in a simple plot where, as I said, he just has to win a race to save his father's shoe shop, and that's, that's it. And that's really all we need from the plot. It doesn't, it doesn't flag. Langdon's performance is consistently strong, and it exhibits an awareness of, of his childlike, irrita- irritating persona. And it, it kind of it kind of shows that the elements introduced for the flop, the strong man, were, were quite unnecessary. Right, should I tell you the other film that I watched this week? Mm-hmm. And if you could call it a film at all, it's more of a short film. It's listed as being twenty three minutes, but it's more like twenty minutes with like you know three minutes of credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has a couple of names. Uh, let's let's just read them all, shall we? It's called uh, GSD or Gong Shu Dao or On That Night While We Dream. Uh, or on the letterbox profile, it's called Guardians of Martial Arts, okay? Mm-hmm. And this is directed by a filmmaker named Win Zhang, who I must say I'm not familiar with. Uh, and <laughs> it stars a a, a array, a, a beautiful, all, all the, the sky was dark for all the stars were in this movie. Because mm-hmm. it's got, you got Jet Li, a, a bald Jet Li, <laughs> Approaching death, lucky gently. You got Dottie Yin. You got Tony Jaw. You wow. got Sam Hung doing the fight choreography. Who's also approaching death. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, and who I assumed was also in the film, but was uh, very disappointed to learn was not. And of course, you uh, starring in all these stars. Who could who could be the star of this feature, you ask? Who do you think? Jackie Chan. Okay, well, uh, also there is, his name does share uh, a couple of, uh, about four letters with Jackie Chan. Oh, that's right, Hugh, it, it stars, <laughs> it was produced by, of course, a Chinese billionaire, Jack Ma. <laughs> 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 so, Hugh, I was uh, reading about Jack Ma for some reason, uh, <laughs> late at night, and I realized that he had made this film which basically he, he plays uh, a martial artist who basically beats up all these famous martial artists. And I thought that, uh, incorrectly, I, I thought incorrectly that that sounded like an entertaining prospect, you know, watching <laughs> this <laughs> very unattractive billionaire, uh, you know, fight like Donnie Yen and stuff and win. Uh, and I have to say, I was this is a pretty boring movie. <laughs> 
and I regret uh, watching all all uh, twenty minutes of it. Um, <laughs> but there is an enjoyable sort of you know vanity product aspect of watching Jack Ball, who in no way should be in movies. I think I I, I don't know how to stuff the man's career out you know before it starts, but he has a very sort of strange looking face. I have to say. Where was this released? Uh, it was released in two thousand and seventeen. <laughs> you can find it. You can find it off, on in full on YouTube. But originally, like, what where was it supposed to go? Where I have no idea. I could. I, I. I was also interested in the fact I could not determine exactly what mm. it was supposed to be. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is just basically a bizarre vanity project where uh, you know Jack Ma beats up all these martial artists. Probably the highlight of the film occurs in the first uh, 10 minutes where... Um, the first half, you mean? <laughs> yeah. The first, like, five minutes, rather, where uh, Jack and Ball goes into this, like, weird basketball court. So the film starts with him. Basically, he's, like, going to this mountain, and he closes his eyes and starts dreaming about fighting all these martial artists. Who cares? It's it's very poorly made. <laughs> um, and it has a very sort of unappealing digital sheen to it. Uh, which I personally associate uh, very much with the modern-day Chinese blockbusters, which all feel very mm-hmm. sort of, like, weightless and fake. You know, point of comparison being, say, uh, Jackie Chan's Chinese Zodiac, which I must say is a vastly uh, superior film to this. <laughs> but, uh, so the first time it is Jack Ball walks into this uh, training facility, and these uh, this group of, you know, random martial artists are bouncing around this very fake CGI basketball, okay? Mm. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, but then Jack Ball makes his interest, and the ball flies towards him, and he punches his fist through it. <laughs> um, that's pretty much the only amusement I got out of it. It was nice to see, you know, Jet Li uh, looking very old and, and, and approaching death, though. He didn't look quite as uh, um, frail as that photo I shared with you that one time mm. was. So maybe he's, uh, you know, getting a little better. Um, but, uh, you know, you got Donnie Yen hanging out. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was, it's, it's a bad film. Um, but if you're interested in sort of weird, uh, billionaire vanity projects as I am, uh, possibly worth a watch. So that's Guardians of Martial Arts. Tell me you wouldn't do the same with a billion dollars. Uh, well, I would, you know, I, I, I think that I, I like to think that I have the good taste to make a, good film with my billion dollars but um, yeah I I can't recommend that people watch this but uh, I think it's you know it, it, it's amusing that it exists you know because I just I just would love the version of like you know uh, Jeff Bezos walking around like fighting Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester <laughs> Stallone like that'd be great <laughs> mm. but oh, probably only in conception too so anyway that's it Okay. That's all so. I watched. <laughs> Spending my life well. All right, back to me. Okay, I'm just going to take my headphones off. <laughs> so the next one I watched was a film from 1927. Oh, my God. <laughs> is, is silent comedy, like, uh, my equivalent of Gundam films or something? <laughs> yeah, no, it's your equivalent of Godzilla films. Because I only watched yeah, three okay. Gundam films. I right, watched fine. 15 Godzilla films. All right, so this is my equivalent of Godzilla films. Uh, so the film is called Long Pants, also directed by Frank Capra, also starring Harry Langdon. I think this was the last uh, collaboration he had with Capra before he, he fired him and 
decided to go alone to disastrous ends. So similarly to Girl Shy, which I talked about a couple of weeks back, the Harold Lloyd film, Langdon plays, he plays this kind of um, proto-incel type. Mm -hmm. And look, maybe I'll just switch to the parlance of the day and just call him a boob. Basically, he's a boob in that he's never felt one. And he lives with his parents and wears goofy short pants. Intent on wooing women, uh-huh. he sequesters himself away in the family attic and reads book after book about romance to learn the tricks of the trade. Very similar to Girl Show. And, and like Girl Show, we even see one of his fantasies where his bold ways wins the princess of his dreams. But soon, reality intrudes. Because after he hails a passing woman that takes his fancy from his window, he is immediately rebuked. Little boys should be seen and not heard, she says. Dejectedly, he looks down at his boyish outfit. Meanwhile, his father returns home with a grown-up pair of pants for his son. His son will finally look like a man. And that's what worries his wife, the mother of the son, who believes that his boyish appearance has thus far kept him out of trouble. But despite his mother's concerns, Harry gets his pants and proudly strides out of the home. In the street outside, a car has just pulled up with a mysterious, sultry brunette in the back. As the driver changes a tyre or something, something that will take 15 minutes, the brunette sits bored in the back reviewing some correspondence she's received. We see one of the letters... The cops are onto her. If she gets caught, she'll get 25 years for peddling snow or something. I couldn't quite read it. But then there's another note from her husband, I think, or from her to her husband, I don't know. But it says something like, baby face, I'll see you again soon. Don't worry, stay strong. Right? So there's this note. When Harry sees the woman as he strides out of his house in his long pants, he immediately falls in love. And he endeavours to catch her attention by performing tricks on his bicycle. Eventually, she notices him and pretends to repay his affection. But she's just humouring him, even though she kisses him on the cheek or something. But that's enough to hook Harry. Suddenly, in the middle of these uh, shenanigans, he gets called back into his house by his mother. And the brunette quickly instructs her driver, let's get out of here before that boob returns. And they speed off down the road. Are you with me so far? I need a grunt. Uh, uh, Thank you. Thank you. Inside, uh, his mother has the phone uh, and she instructs Harry to get on the line. Turns out to be a neighbouring girl who is blonde. This is important. She's blonde. And she says something like, you know, you're going to be at the dance tomorrow with me, Harry. So it looks like his parents are trying to orchestrate uh, a pairing with a nice neighbour girl. But Harry's not interested. He wants that uh, sultry vamp. So he returns outside, only to discover the car has gone. Then we jump forward in time. It's his wedding day. He's uh, set to marry the, uh, the boring blonde neighbour. And he's sad. But suddenly he sees a newspaper and he sees a picture of uh, the woman from the car. And uh, turns out she's been captured. She's in prison. And he's like, I can't, I can't marry someone else when the love of my life is, you know, in, in distress. 
I've got to go. And uh, his father's like, no, you can't. Everything's been set up. You've got to marry this nice neighbor girl. You can't, you can't leave now. And he's like, oh, you're right. What do I do? And then he sees a gun. And he's like, ah, I'll murder her. That's what I'll do. So, <laughs> so then uh, we get a large stretch of the film in which uh, he tries to murder his wife-to-be in order to run away with this uh, criminal woman. Unfortunately, he fails, but he nonetheless runs away, um, helps, helps the woman bust out of jail. Then he witnesses her, like, brutally beat a woman who she perceived had wronged her. And he's like, oh, maybe this was a bad idea. So he goes back to uh, the blonde neighbour girl that he tried to murder and uh, lives happily ever after. So there you go. That's long pants. They're very strange. Uh, very strange sort of silent comedy version yeah, of it's, Sunrise. Yeah, it's like I processed like uh, maybe 5% of that. <laughs> the point is, as I just said, it's, like a, it's basically like Sunrise, but uh, as a silent comedy. It was actually before Sunrise, like a few months before as well. So there you go. Um, and uh, in a way it plays, I mean, it's obviously not as accomplished as Sunrise, but in a way it plays better than Sunrise because, as I said, part of the appeal of his character is his unlikability in a way, and the fact that it's in the context of this dark comedy and uh, that you're not really expected to sympathise with anything that, that happens or anyone that's in it. <sighs> means that it doesn't have the same problem of uh, Sunrise, at least the problem I have with Sunrise, where it's like, why, why am I supposed to sympathise with this guy's plight when he's just, like, tried to murder his wife? But anyway, that's Long Pants. Uh, I think it was a flop, <laughs> as you might expect. Uh, according to Wikipedia, Buster Keaton, who was a fan of Langdon's, thought that Langdon had gone too far with the wife-killing stuff in this film. <laughs> so, okay. There you go. There you go. All right, what's next? That's long pants. Let's speed on. Uh, okay, where should we go in the history of cinema from here? Oh, mm. God. Mm. Another fucking silent. <laughs> Let's jump backwards in time. Uh, uh, <laughs> to 1918, <laughs> where you watched Birth of a Nation. No, to 1921, where I watched Seven Years Bad Luck, a Max Linder film. Hey, you, that's what it feels like listening to you right now. <laughs> now you know how I feel. <laughs> I don't take this walk. You do. I do You not. do. I've I edited these not. podcasts. I know how long it takes. Uh, I don't think so, bro. Please continue, though. Do you know Max Linder? Nope. So Max Linder was one of, if not the first major film stars with a global out- outreach. Uh, one of the first international film stars, at least. So he was a silent comedian as well, from France originally. He hit his career peak shortly before the outbreak of World War I. Um, he did participate in World War I. He failed a physical so he couldn't be a soldier, but he was a dispatch driver to the front lines. After that experience, things were very different for him. Chaplin was now the world's most popular comedian, and uh, Linda embarked on a, a failed attempt to break into Hollywood. Chaplin actually cites Linda as an influence on his own work, and the two did become friends when he was in America, with Linda in turn crediting Chaplin with helping him refine his material. 
Um, he suffered chronic depression and anxiety, um, some trauma perhaps from the war, and uh, he was unable to work in the same manner as he, as he had before. Nonetheless, um, he returned to America to try to break in once more, and uh, he made a feature film called Seven Years Bad Luck, which I'm going to speak about now. Uh-huh. So the character that he was famous for is called Max, after its creator. This character comes from the opposite end of the socioeconomic spectrum to uh, Chaplin's Tramp. He is a foppish, upper-class gentleman, perhaps someone who would not be out of place in a P.G. Woodhouse novel. And the character he plays is quite distinct from Chaplin, Lloyd, Langdon and Keaton, even uh, as he shares the same sort of mischief-prone characteristics that drive the comedy. This film opens with an extended version of what, again, I'm going to guess is, is originally a, a, a gag from Vaudeville, where someone tries to convince someone else that an empty mirror screen is an actual mirror by mirroring their movements on the other side. You know, the famous sequence from Duck Soup. Here it's uh, executed beautifully, and indeed, I think Linda proves himself as the writer and director of this film and producer and star to be adept at staging and filming visual gags across the course of this film. The story is, is pretty threadbare. Um, all it is is Max breaks a mirror and suffers a number of mishaps as a result, including losing his fiancée to a devious friend, um, and then order is restored at the end. Uh, yes, we get some racism here too, where Max dons... Uh, a stocking as a kind of blackface disguise to escape a train conductor, uh, which is uh, as unpleasant as you might expect. And it even veers into the panic around black male sexuality and white female purity. Although, although that sequence is somewhat ambiguous, but that's kind of how it read to me. But otherwise, this is, I think, a very accomplished film, especially for 1921, when uh, a lot of the silent clowns were still finding their feet. And it is evidence, I think, of a major talent. And I also noticed that he could be played by Johnny Depp in a terrible biopic. So there you go. That's seven years bad luck. Mm. What's next? Then I watched, I'm including a short film because you did, a film called, uh, in English, Max Takes Tonics, which is a short film he made in 1911, at the height of his fame. Anyway, it's like 16 minutes long. You can find it on uh, archive.org with uh, French subtitles. I guess the subtitles don't really matter. They might have helped a little bit, but I got the gist of it. This is a well-calibrated, neat little short. I read somewhere that it was his best work, or at least his best short. Um, essentially, the Max character is prescribed uh, some sort of tonic for his fatigue. Uh, I think he takes too much of it, becomes somewhat intoxicated, and stumbles around town getting into duels with various high-profile figures. And when he gets into these duels, they give him their business cards. So he's got all these uh, business cards of these uh, figures on his person. And whenever he gets into a scrape with a policeman, he presents one of these cards, perhaps inadvertently, and they mistake him for the high-profile figure on the card. And it's, it's well done, the way the plot converges in the end. Well done. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. And again, perhaps fittingly with <laughs> perhaps fittingly with Black Lives Matter, I do like the way that in all these silent comedies, um, the police presence is as a per persistent antagonist. So there you go. 
Finally, finally, just last night, I watched the film that I wanted to watch uh, on the night of the protest. The film that I deemed to be especially pizza-worthy. A film also directed by one John Carpenter, and a film I've also seen before, but a long, long time ago. And that film, can you guess? What is the most pizza-worthy of John Carpenter's films? (laughs) That is my question. Uh, Escape from L.A. No. Uh, they live. No. I mean, both um, are good options. Memoirs of Invisible Man. Nope. Uh, Ghost of Mars. Nope. The also Ward. a good pizza film. The Ward. No. The uh, Ward. Vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Vampires. No. Nope. Uh, Masters of Horror. Or, I mean, uh, what's it called? Cigarette, cigarette Birds. It may seem like the wrong cuisine for the film, but I think the film is is inherently a. a No, no, I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep going. All right, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, cigarette burns. No. Uh, What was his other one? Is it pro life? Is that the other one he directed? Pro life. Yeah. Really? That that may have been. um, I don't think it's a film about be pro life. I think it's a film (laughs) that's pro abortion, but I could be wrong. I think that uh, I that's either his or Joe Dante's or one of Joe Dante's. I can't remember. I don't remember John Carpenter having a pro-life film. No, it's a, a film. film okay, that. look, bro, it's it's one of his episodes for Bastards of Horror. Uh, okay, right. Pro-life. I thought that was called Cigarette Birds. All right. Okay. Keep guessing if you want uh, to prolong see. this episode. Okay. Uh, body bags. No. Um. Dark Star. <laughs> no. Uh, let's see what else he dragged. Uh, Village of the Damned. No. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness. No. Uh, Star Starman. Nope. Although, although that is that is, I reckon that would be a good pizza film too. I want to watch Starman. I, I, I like that a lot. I haven't seen it. The Fog. No, haven't seen it. <laughs> Captain Boyer. Did you watch that? No. Wait. I, I would have talked That's about another it. film. 14. <laughs> yes. I would, I would have talked about it if I had watched it. All right, should I keep going? Yes. Captain Voyeur. Wait, wait, wait. Before before you keep going, did you, you didn't watch Captain Voyeur, but you should. It's really short. Okay. It's like six minutes long. All right. Uh, can I keep going? <laughs> I don't want to tell you too much about it, but it's about a voyeur who oh my God. in a superhero okay. costume. <laughs> okay. And he made it uh, at uh, his university. I mean, his Elvis. film school thing. Yep, you, there you go. You 14 to... films. So I've beaten El- your record. Because uh, it's a short film that counts. Elvis. I just want you to acknowledge that. Can Elvis. you acknowledge that now? Elvis. Can you acknowledge that now? Elvis. Can you acknowledge that now? Elvis. And we'll proceed with this charade. Uh, yeah, I acknowledge it. Okay, Elvis. Thank you. Uh, no, not Elvis. Uh, somebody's watching me. No. Um... Well, he only wrote Halloween 2. I guess he could still count it as his film, sort of. Halloween 2? <laughs> no. Alright, All right. Uh, Escape from New York? <laughs> no. Um, I think that's all of his films. Halloween? No. Um, Christine? No. Uh, uh, you're, we already talked about you already talked about the other ones, so I guess the only option for it to be is Big Trouble in Little China. That's the one. 
which I've only seen maybe 20 minutes of, which I, one of those films that I started watching when I was a teenager, and I was like, I don't want to watch this, and then I stopped. But I don't know right now, so. You should definitely return to it. Yep, I will. With pizza. Mmm. I mean, you could be thematic and have Chinese food or something, but still, I think this is, it feels like a pizza movie to me. Um, mm. I, I had pizza and homemade garlic bread as well. It was a feast. All right, let's let's get to how you thought about this this movie, shall we? And then we can end this goddamn podcast. Uh, it holds up really well. It's super enjoyable. Um, mm. Sort of going in, there's some trepidation about how racist it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But I mean, it does like traffic in a lot of stereotypes, and it's it's quite interesting as a light, gentle, and still enjoyable subversion of a certain type of action movie. <laughs> Big trouble and a little tighter. It could have been more racist. <laughs> well, like, like I think I would be interested in uh, like an Asian American take on it, as opposed mm. to my take. Before I take it completely off the hook, you know what I mean. But in terms of representation, it does stand out um, in its time for like co-starring uh, with a decent role, a couple of Asian American actors, and notably Asian American actors who get to speak in just an American accent. And what I like about this film, and I read a quote from John Carpenter that kind of solidified uh, what I felt about it watching it again, is the way that, um, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Let me find Kurt Russell. Me. Kurt Russell. The Kurt Russell character, the guy he plays, the, the truck driver who gets caught up in all these, uh, in all this um, spiritual kung fu stuff, uh, is not really the hero. Mm. He ne- like he thinks he's the hero. That's how how John Carpenter put it. Like he described Kurt Russell's character as a sidekick who thinks he's the hero, and conversely, the character who is played by uh, Dennis Dunn, who's his best friend, uh, who is sort of superficially like his sidekick, is more the heroic type. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way of approaching the story, while while superficially still seeming like a standard run of the mill, gently racist. Um, <laughs> 80s action film so the film i think was originally conceived as like a western an eastern meets western sort of story and it was updated to the contemporary day and then um i think when like like sort of a shanghai noon type (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, when carpenter got a hold of it um he said he removed some of the racism (laughs) which is funny and apparently he always wanted to direct a martial arts film yeah, I buy it. He stages the, the fights pretty well. It's definitely not comparable <laughs> to what Hong Kong was doing at the same time. No. But nonetheless, this is a really enjoyable top-to-bottom romp. Great stuff. Can I tell you something? Uh, can I tell you two things? One that I meant to tell you yesterday that's not mm-hmm. related to anything, and one that yeah. is related exactly directly to the topic at hand, Yeah. which is that in uh, 2016, okay? Yeah. A independent, or sorry, 2017, an independent comic studio known as Boom Comics mm-hmm. released a little comic book, Hugh, that is a <laughs> crossover series of Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York. Oh, God. <laughs> does this sound like the worst thing ever? Yes, it does. <laughs> Yep. And then, you know, this is this is not related to anything we've been talking about at all. <laughs> but uh, last night I also learned that there is a budget uh, 
film, like 3D animated film, of the classic comic strip, Barbadook. Okay, this is supposed to be coming out this year. And can you guess what great uh, actor plays uh, Barbadook in this in this budget animated film? <laughs> I don't really know what the Marmaduke character is in terms of his personality. So I'm he's just kind like of thinking. He's just a big dog. Okay. Oh, he's the dog. I was thinking of the cat. No, anyway. no. That's Garfield. <laughs> Not that cat. That's Heathcliff. Yeah, that's Heathcliff. That's what I was thinking. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about Heathcliff. But, so uh, just a dog. Yep. <laughs> Sam Elliott? Nope. What what uh <laughs> What comedian have we been have I been forcing you to watch clips of? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay. That's right. You, okay. Pete Davidson, is on track to voice Marmaduke in this film, which, <laughs> which may or may not exist. <laughs> I'm just gonna send you a photograph. Star real- shine brighter. <laughs> so I send you a, a, a poster of this real quick. <laughs> hey guys, it's me, Pete Davidson. That wasn't a hey, bad growl. I- Pete Davidson impression. I smoke weed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> okay. No, no, you're doing it too goofy. Okay. Okay. No laughing. Yeah, I, I was okay. adding an element of Scooby Doo to it. So. <laughs> Man, Scooby Doo isn't fucking Marmaduke. They're very different. I don't characters. know what the fuck Marmaduke is, but he looks like Scooby Doo, kind of, on that picture. I've only got two more. What, you ready? Really? Yeah. Go ahead. The penultimate film I watched this week was a film I think you've seen from 1981, directed by... I memorized the pronunciation from a documentary I watched and I've already forgotten it. Joy Hark? I think it's Andrzej Jawalski, Possession. Oh, okay. I have seen that. 1981. And, um, yeah, this is pretty good. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Had Sam Neill in it. That was good. You know, I can't even remember anything about it. I watched it such a long time ago. Isabella Johnny is great in it. There is a great se- sequence of hysteria in the subway, and it does have some sort of somewhat goofy uh, practical gore effects, where she's like fucking this tentacle monster. I don't take it especially seriously though. I I like the. Disintegration of the marriage stuff. Yeah, of course he did. Which is like the first half of the film. Uh, I mean, it goes through the whole film, but like the first half of the film doesn't have like the supernatural elements that uh, creep in. Okay. But like the way the way they talk about this film as a metaphor for the the political condition in Poland at the time. You know, it's set in Berlin. We get shots of the Berlin Wall and that sort of stuff. I'm not quite convinced that enough groundwork was was put into uh, constructing this metaphor for it to function that way. And, like, the uh, the director also said, like, idiots classified this film as as a horror film and stuff like that. I'm like, well, I mean, there is some cause for that. There is horror elements. (laughs) Um, He does does seem to regret uh, his experience with the special effects guy who we employed um, as a favour to the producer. Mm. I, I don't think it entirely coheres together in the intelligent metaphorical way that the filmmaker intends. Um, even while there's a lot of enjoyable stuff within it, but 
I'm somewhat skeptical about this type of symbolism and metaphor in um, films like this. I prefer In the Mouth of Madness when it comes to unhinged Sam Neill horror films. Uh, I, I, I will say that uh, this film, uh, I think, uh, was ruined for me. Uh, now that I, I can only associate it with a video I watched uh, when I was in college of Max Landis singing his praises. So now, I can only, <laughs> now whenever I think about Possession, I think about Max Landis. So I can't, I can't watch it ever again. <laughs> so... <laughs> I feel better about my reservations now. <laughs> uh, anyway, final film. The last one I watched. Oh, thank God. I mean, oh no. <laughs> let's, let's rewind the clock once more from 1981 all the way back to the roaring 20s. To 1921. The second film, feature film that Max Linder made, not Max Landis, Max Linder made, um, on his uh, second attempt to, to break Hollywood. Uh, and I, I read some article where someone referred to it as his masterpiece, so I wanted to watch it. And watch what I did. You watched it? Yeah, I watched it. I just watched it, in fact. This is kind of a strange film. Maybe my judgment of this film is clouded a little bit by what I know about uh, Max Linder's demise. <laughs> which oh, I will quickly... got killed? No. Max Linder died in uh, 1924. So the previous year, 1923, he married uh, an 18-year-old. So not quite Chaplin. She was 18, not 16. And uh, they had a daughter together. Mm. The daughter must not have been very old if she was born in 1924. And he died in, 1920, in February 1924. But not only did he die, but his wife died as well. So it's been reported, oh, actually, I think it was initially reported as an accidental overdose of sleeping powder. That was the original report. Uh. Later, it became clear that uh, there was intentionality there, that maybe they had made a suicide pact. Mm. So they drank veronal, which is some sort of uh, sleeping chemical, I think, injected morphine and slash their wrists. But of course, um, it may not have been a suicide pact. It may have been a murder-suicide. Mm. We don't know. It's not actually clear. But the fact that, you know, he married a much younger woman, they had been together like a year, and uh, apparently there were reports that uh, she had told um, one of her friends that he will kill me. Um, cast doubt on the idea that it was a, you know, a mutual thing. Okay. <laughs> but, but we don't actually know. All right. Uh, sounds like I should be skipping all, all these films. <laughs> and uh, one of his descendants, his daughter, the daughter I spoke of. What, what fucking movie is this? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is important to the movie as well that... Uh, so she wrote in her memoir that someone reported to her that Max told a friend that he planned to kill himself and his wife because he couldn't bear the thought of her belonging to another after he was gone. So uh, sounds like a, a nice guy, if that's true. Yeah. That, that kind of colours this film 
because it initially starts as uh, a, a more frivolous story where the Max character is trying to win over his fiance, mm-hmm. despite the objections of her aunt. Um, it, and it's kind of not that interesting, to be honest. And then towards the end, uh, the, the sort of second half of the film takes place in like a, a bootlegging parlor and maybe suggested boudoir as well. And uh, involves some jealousy and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dip, I don't know. It, <laughs> it becomes quite. It doesn't. It it it's still like operating as a comedy, but it doesn't really feel like a comedy. <sighs> That's how I feel about this podcast. <laughs> and there's just kind of some dark sequences where he's like stuck in a boiler room with a gun, waiting for his wife to come out, who he mistakenly believes is having an affair in this boudoir. And she believes he's having an affair. There's, there's a misun- mutual misunderstanding there. She wants to catch him. He wants to catch her. So they've kind of sprung traps for one another. And it's this, uh, so it's this bootlegging boudoir, which at the press of a button transforms into like a dressmaking salon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in quite an impressive bit of machinery that they exploit to uh, comic effect. And that's all well done and impressive. But there is like a, a kind of sour note in the in the sort of jealousy plots that is quite disturbing, and it's not surprising because maybe that was his character. There maybe you go. He was a murderer. Maybe he was. <laughs> Let's be my wife. It's actually kind of hard to find. So most of these silent be stuff I like revisiting because they're wife. out of copyright, and you can usually find decent enough transfers on YouTube or archive.org. This one was difficult to track down. Uh, I tracked it down eventually under, like, a Russian YouTube channel. Um, it doesn't actually say the title in English anywhere, but it's a perfect English print of it, so it can be found. There you go. That's for your benefit, Hunter, specifically, be because I know you'll be... My wife. I know you, Yeah, that, I forgot the Bowie Stay reference. with me. The Bowie song is a reference to this movie. Be my wife. Sometimes you get so on wing. All right, what is it? Is there anything else? We're done. Yeah, uh, thank, thank the Lord. Off brown horse.